0: Welcome to another episode of Kotaku Split Screen, the only podcast that dresses up as a superhero and fights crime. On today's show, we're talking about the new South Park game, the Fractured Butthole, the Fractured Butthole, and discussing what it does well, what it does poorly, and how South Park fits into our lives in 2017. Then we get into this week's news, which includes EA shutting down Visceral Games, a former Naughty Dog employee alleging sexual harassment, and the State of Destiny 2. Finally, we talk a bit about the games we're playing, which include Shadow of War and Stardew Valley. Alright, let's go. And we are back for another episode in the triple digits of Kotaku Split Screen. My name is Jason Schreier, I am the news editor at Kotaku.com, and I am joined by Kirk Hamilton, my colleague and the editor at large of kotaku.com large and in charge here we are hello kirk hi jason i am keeping it 101 feeling very I'm feeling very 101 about this this, this is split, split screen. screen 101 so if you want to know the nuts and bolts of split screen, exactly. this is the one you go to this is our our, our 101 level college course on kotaku split screen
1: Yes, this is the only time where we can not say,
0: what, this isn't Podcasting 101, because it is, in fact, Podcasting 101. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Craig, before we get started, what is going on on our sister podcast this week? Uh, I fave this, Kotaku's other podcast. Patricia and Gita
1: will be talking about Rick and Morty, they say. They're going to talk about the fandom and also whether they think this this current season is maybe not as good, in addition to some other things. But I think Rick and Morty will be the,
0: the dominant topic. Do you watch that show? I have watched a couple of episodes and enjoyed them quite a bit. I watched one where, um, All of they—they were surrounded by these aliens that were convincing them that they were a part of the family and uh, uh, like planting memories in their heads about their time with them. And so they would introduce all these ridiculous side characters that were like, "Hey, I've been here all along." Uh, Did you see? Have you seen that one? It was really funny. No, I I, so I don't. I haven't really watched that show. I I watched the premiere. I think the very
1: first episode, and it was kind of a lot. And I know people love it, and that it's this people that has a very passionate fan base, Uh and um, apparently. is you know one of the smartest shows on, so I sort of feel like I'm missing out for not having seen it. Um, but I haven't, I haven't watched it. I'll have to tune in
0: um, to fave this. That'll be up on Friday. Yeah, uh, well, to hear to hear them talk about it. It's funny that they're talking about Rick and Morty because we are going to talk about another cartoon show that has uh, a, a controversial, a lot of controversial elements, including its mm. fan base and its characters and its subject matter. Today, we are going to talk about South Park. So there's a new South Park game, and you played it. I Maybe did play tell, it. I played it tell all. Tell us a little bit about The Fractured But Yes, yeah, so I guess first we should talk about the game, and then we'll kind of have a wider discussion about the show in general and where it fits into society today, et cetera, et cetera. So South Park, The Fractured But Whole, it's a new game. Um, it is... A successor to the Stick of Truth, which came out in 2014, and was developed by an RPG studio called Obsidian. And this one changed developers. It is now directed by Ubisoft San Francisco. It changed engines. It changed technology. It's a totally different type of game, but it still looks and feels the same as Stick of Truth. So in that, it feels like an authentic episode of South Park. So it's animated the same way. It's uh, the the graphics all look authentic. You move around, and you're moving around like. A South Park character. It's written and voice acted by Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the co-creators of South Park, among many other things. So it feels very much like you are watching the show, which is one of the reasons that it is so cool and well-crafted. Um, so this game is very similar to the first one it brings in a new, a couple of new things um, streamlines some of the mechanical uh, ways you interact with the world for example instead of opening up a box and then having to select individual items or like hit take all or whatever it'll just automatically give everything to you when you're standing next to a box um, mm-hmm. so it streamlines a lot of stuff like that and it also changes up the combat system by adding this grid battlefield uh, kind of fire emblem light where you can move your characters around to to different positions on the battlefield and their attacks do different things uh, depending on the character and the ability they will use uh, kind of shape like attacks so one, one attack might just do damage to the person next to that character another attack might do damage in an L shape or a T shape based on grids um, it's a cool system very simple very easy um, but fun and made more fun by the animation and the writing and the music and all the great stuff that's in there um, and and then the other new thing is that this time instead of playing medieval fantasy the boys of South Park and one girl are playing superheroes so they're all dressed up as superheroes and fighting crime and saving kittens and all that jazz mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's uh i would say overall it's it's a fun funny game i think it's a better game than stick of truth but not as revolutionary a game it 's uh, as I wrote in my review, which went up this week its It plays it safe in a lot of ways, which is kind of weird to say for a game that does so many horrifying dirty things because the material is vintage south park it's It gets really gross there are fart jokes, there are offensive stereotypes there 's everything you would think to see that you would see from a South Park game but uh, in terms of design. Uh, it just plays it really safe. There's a lot of easy puzzles. There's a lot of hand holding. It's never not clear where to go. It's never not clear how to solve a puzzle. If you wait around for too long, the game will tell you, "Hey, try doing this." So it's very Ubisoft in that way that it doesn't want to. It doesn't want the player to get lost. And it feels almost like a shame because I feel like a, a South Park game should be subverting your expectations and fucking with you a little bit. Um, so if they do another game, I would like to see more of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've played some of this game. Um, I I agree. Yeah, how much did you play? I don't know. Got hour, few hours. Um, okay. And it is it's an interesting game. I think that it it can it captures for me. I think a lot of my current feeling about South Park in general, and also it's it is definitely like you say missing the the key sort of exciting frisson that happened in Stick of Truth. I remember playing that game and just thinking more than anything else. This is just so cool that I feel like I'm playing an episode of South Park. Um, mm-hmm. Because South Park is so lo-fi and sort of deliberately crappy looking, it's very easy to make a video game that it, one-to-one recreates it in a way that I've never actually felt about playing any other game that I can think of, actually. You know, certainly not anything based well, on... Well,
0: very easy. Easy is uh, is may not be the right... Uh, well, I mean, right, right
1: doable though. Like it, it is, it is possible to do it. I, I you know, compared to yes, say playing yes. a video game that's based on a live-action property. Obviously, no. I'm
0: just remembering the reason I say that is because I'm. We had a talk with Jason Schroeder at E3 where we talked right, about how yes. not easy it is to do that animation pipeline. Right. So okay. So, so, so easy
1: is the wrong word. Doable. Yeah. It is doable, doable at all. Yes. In, yeah. Totally. And in every other instance, it is not doable. You can't make a Stranger Things video game that is indistinguishable from watching Stranger Things on TV. And similarly, you can't make a Voltron video game that looks the same as the Voltron animated show. It's just, we're not there yet. Um, That's maybe more doable, but the South Park, the way that that show is deliberately made in this kind of lo-fi way. So it's cool. It was very cool to play Sick of Truth, and I remember just thinking how c- cool it was, kind of constantly as I played. And I don't feel that way playing this because I kind of already did that. Right. So the novelty Been is worn off. Um, it also it's interesting. I don't know. I am so I watched the the prequel episode um, that aired, the South Park episode, uh-huh. and it made me just reflect on the fact that I don't really watch South Park anymore, and the way the many ways that it feels to me as though South Park's humor. Is no longer relevant at least to me, and has sort of is just it feels like the humor of a bygone era uh-huh. and um just doesn't do much for me anymore and playing the game kind of feels the same way. I think a feeling that's exacerbated by the fact that a lot of the jokes in the game are the same kinds of jokes that were in the first game, uh-huh,
0: yeah, I mean. I guess so. What? Which types of jokes are you
1: talking about? So it's interesting that you say that the game is is kind of safe in terms of its mechanics and gameplay, but not in terms of its jokes, because there's this remove and this well, safety. Well, I didn't say that it wasn't safe in terms of its jokes. Okay, because I think that it is. I think that it's, uh, and it's a thing that I think has been true of South Park for a long time as much as south park does occasionally and i should say really just trey parker and matt stone do occasionally take these risks with the jokes that they write a lot of times they wind up coming down in this very safe place on them and you talked about this mm-hmm. in your review the sort of the idea that a lot of times the the takeaway from a South Park episode will be the kids saying, "Okay, both of you are crazy." You know, we have the crazy animal rights activists on right. one side, and the people who want to you know enslave and chop up animals and are, and hate animals on the other side. And you're both ridiculous. And the right. only valid answer is to not care, which is like a thing that South Park does, and you know is you know not the most interesting way to explore this stuff or use satire. There's also so I'm thinking of a couple of jokes in this game to kind of get to the heart of what I'm talking about. Um so the first one is you choose your gender in this game. And it's actually a really interesting process. You go see Mr. Mackey, um and he asks you your gender and you can assign yourself all kinds of different um, gender identities based more on more than a, any other video game. Yeah, more than maybe any other video game and it's very deliberately done and I think handled pretty well. It's it's really interesting that I chose a uh, gender uh, non-conforming character, and Mr. Mackey didn't really know what to do with it. But then he gets on the phone with my right. parents, and my parents are basically say to him, "Yeah, I mean that's cool. That's that's how our child identifies." And he says, "Okay," and he sort of talks through it. And then I went and changed my gender, and um, you know, picked a, a couple of different options to just see. But you can be all these different identities, and that's interesting um, for a game to do just on its own. That's interesting. So then I want I chose a cisgender, uh, just a straight white guy character uh-huh. and then there's a thing that happens after the scene i gather you come outside and you get attacked by these rednecks and uh-huh. the rednecks are attacking you no matter what you're i believe no matter what you choose they attack you for that and i had, i was now a cisgender male so it was basically the least oppressed possible identity and the the rednecks pull up and they say oh it's a some cisgender male we're going to beat you up. And so it's basically the game is it's been programmed to have these guys come and attack you for your you know for your gender identity no matter what it is. Right. So that's a f- in some in one way that's a funny punchline because it's funny to imagine that Rednecks would come and and oppress somebody for being a cisgender male, which is not something that actually happens really in uh-huh. America. On the other hand, it's kind of a cop out, right? It's it's the game saying, "Okay, well we're just going to oppress everyone equally." and it's in and it doesn't wind up it doesn't wind up finishing the joke. it doesn't go to the final step of that's not actually what would happen. This is funny because that's ridiculous you know it it doesn't it doesn't see it through it doesn't really have anything to say about it other than the fact that okay, we're gonna do this thing, it's very inclusive. we're gonna include this joke about it that can come off as a joke one way or another way depending on what you chose. but there's no kind of there's no there's no there there there's no actual point to the joke and that kind of safety i think in the way that that south park typically tells jokes mm-hmm. doesn't really do it for me it it is just it winds up coming off like exploring these things raising these ideas putting them in there and then not actually
0: coming down anywhere on it mm. well there there's more to that particular joke and it's explored like, there are more beats on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you want me to spoil something for you? Yeah, sure. minor okay. for you? Okay, so so minor spoilers for South Park fracture But Whole. Skip ahead a couple of seconds if you don't want to hear this. But basically, those rednecks, you keep choosing things throughout the game. You choose your ethnicity, you choose your, your race, you choose a bunch of different things. And the rednecks will keep coming and saying the same thing. And then at the end, they say, like, there's this great scene where one of the rednecks is like, um, for me, it was like, we don't take kindly to non-binary, black, Japanese, Orthodox Jewish, lawful people around here. And then one of the other rednecks right turns to him and is like, "Why are you just talking like that?" And he goes, "Dialogue trees." And it's this, it's this good, solid moment that right. that made me made me enjoy. I I I get what you're saying about it not wanting to come down on anything. And you're right that it's not really making a point, but it made me laugh, which is what it was supposed to do. And for that, I appreciate it um, i do think I think there are other examples of jokes that that are safe and don't really come down on a side and that's always been kind of south park's mo and to your point about that, I think that one of the reasons it feels like a bygone era, the idea of like throwing grenades at everybody and burning all sides and everything sucks is because now in the age of Trump, it's, it's a lot harder to accept that. And it's a lot, it, it's the, the subverting things is no longer saying everything sucks. Subverting things is fighting against like the reality that we're in. You yeah. can't say both sides are equally bad anymore. That doesn't, that argument no longer holds any water where it might have in the past. It, and I remember, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I- I, okay I was gonna say um, one of the most classic South Park episodes is douche versus turd sandwich which was about the 2004 election and it was about Bush versus Gore at a time where both candidates were very uninspiring to people and I actually didn't see this past episode of South Park about the 2016 election um, but what I gathered was that they were going in similar directions and just attacking both Hillary Clinton and Trump who was who was mr. Garrison in, in the show um, and then I think they had had kind of a come to Jesus moment where they realized that where after Trump won, they were like, holy shit, what do we do now? Like, how do we satirize this awful situation? And I think with this most recent season of South Park, they haven't been, they've been staying away from uh, uh, that stuff, except for one episode where they talked about North Korea. And that was actually the best episode of the season where they just went after Trump and have this song about putting your phone down if you're a president of the United States of America. But anyway, uh, long story Story short, it feels like uh, I think they are acknowledging in some ways that 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 this reality is is no longer possible in a way like you can't do douche versus turd sandwich anymore because it's more like like turd sandwich versus apocalypse. Um, <laughs> And that was the most recent election, right? Like a lot of people didn't think Hillary Clinton was a, a a great appetizing choice, but the other choice was literally could be the end of America as we know it. So uh, in this new political reality, yes, that old South Park approach does feel like a so. Th- it's partly that. Um, I think that there is so. I, it's
1: interesting to watch a show like this change when it you know it came it's it came to cultural significance during a different era, and has had to adjust with the way that just culture has changed, like not just to be politically correct or to be more right or because it's creator's views change just because also the entire conversation, the whole nature of comedy changes. I think that Uh part of this remove and part of the contradiction and the confusingness of South Park in general comes from the fact that it is really fundamentally straight white guy humor and i really Mm -hmm. do kind of see it that way it's this type of humor and i engage in this humor all the time as a straight white guy where you can Mm -hmm. kind of just laugh at the whole situation and you can say oh look at how ridiculous everybody is and it's it's very core to the identity of south park and always was and it worked it just played better honestly 15 20 Mm -hmm. years ago it's i think it's really weirdly difficult and uh, it's, it's not just true of South Park, but it's very difficult to have the conversation about South Park of why this humor doesn't do it for me, or you know, somebody in particular anymore. Versus should this humor exist? Should this show exist? And those are very different questions, right? And I've mm-hmm. noticed more and more the more I come across conversations about South Park, I feel like I'm constantly swerving the wheel to keep the car on the road of just talking about why why I. My own relationship to this show and the humor. I, I remember sitting there watching that prequel episode, just thinking, "Man, this show has
0: lost a step. This just isn't." Well, that was also a
1: pretty also bad a weak episode. episode. So, another joke, another example of this, and sort of what I'm talking about with um, this sort of type of humor, this this very white dude humor, um, is well, there are two examples. One that I was thinking of when I was just sort of looking into stuff, thinking about South Park, is the guy who owns the Shitty Walk, the um, the City Walk mm-hmm. owner. That's mm-hmm. like an example of the show kind of adjusting and trying to adjust in a in a more you sort of conscious, less racist way. Where this guy started out as this sort of egregious. Chinese stereotype this is the guy who owns the walk in town for anyone doesn't know the town he speaks in this exaggerated Asian accent and he calls it the Mm -hmm. shitty walk which is how he pronounces it and there's just all these ongoing jokes about Mongolians and him and and then I I think it's so he he was introduced I looked at the timeline on this he's introduced I think in at a long time ago uh, very early on in the show and then many seasons later seven or eight seasons later it's revealed suddenly that he's actually Uh a white guy who thinks he's Asian and uh-huh. so it's this kind of retconning of, of the joke upsetting. and saying, "Okay, so now you know it was a white guy, so maybe this joke isn't offensive anymore." Even though that's bullshit, and that's a bullshitty way to sort of quote undo a joke when you can't do it. I think the coon is another good example of this. This I've seen you know people talking about this. The coon is Cartman's um, superhero alter ego, and he's uh-huh. a raccoon, but he's also the coon, and that's a you know a well-known racial
0: slur. And well, I, is it well known? I thought it was only like definitely. I mean, I don't know. Oh, you yeah, think it's well absolutely. That's super okay. well known. Um, I, re- I remember learning it like a I mean, it's, a, a, it's a few a years outdated. Ago, but...
1: I don't believe people use it now. It's not like the N word, right. but it's used to be like the N word, and it was, I think, constantly right. used. And there's no question in my mind that the Kuhn was introduced, this the fundamental underpinnings of this joke are the coon is introduced in an episode called the coon the whole joke is that the name is a racial slur but the character itself is in no way racist he's a raccoon and he does raccoon uh-huh. things and he wears a raccoon outfit and the whole thing is basically like the human raccoon could have been the name but by calling it the coon the joke is this sort of haha we use a racial slur only it's not actually there, which is such a like such a white person joke because it's kind of fundamentally gaslighty, right? The nature of that joke. So gaslighting is uh-huh. like when you you're doing something to someone and then telling them you're not doing it, and that's the very nature of the joke. Is this is a racist word? Only it's not. Look, it's not actually. It's just a raccoon, and that right. to me is a kind of humor that I used to maybe would have chuckled at 20 years ago, 15 years ago. But increasingly, I just don't like it. I don't like that kind of joke. I don't, I get it. I get how it's constructed, but it doesn't do much for me.
0: Well, could you argue that, that. I mean, yeah, it's it's just thinking about the character of Cartman. The character of Cartman is a, a foul, racist, just horrible person who would totally embrace a racial slur. But in the show and the game, the game definitely, the show as far as I can tell, it's never actually mentioned as a racial slur. It's never even referred to as a racial slur. Um, it's it's possible that within the fiction of the show, Cartman knew it was a racial slur. And I think used it. he never did. He I think didn't. it's more the joke is a meta joke. You think it's it the just... joke is that it's a, it exists as this then, thing, and, and it's just you, been there so long, you know, that it just and do persists. You, well, so do you think that it's, it's become, because it's never used as a racial slur, and because I'm sure a lot of people watching the show have no idea it's a racial slur, do you think it's the type of thing where it's, the word has just become used so much... like? I don't know, inundating people to the point where it's not even seen that way anymore. It's no. like, oh, that's I mean, I just think I think the most important—that's that's kind of how I and I I am coming from this as not someone who would be called a coon. Yeah, because that's I the thing. White.
1: Absolutely, the most important person you need to talk to about this is someone who would hear that, which is a non-white person would hear the coon, and they would immediately. I mean, I can't tell you because I'm white. But they would be far more likely to immediately say, "I see exactly what this show is saying." Sure, and sure. that's the Im- kind of the important thing in any of these conversations, right? Uh-huh. Is, is the one person saying, "I don't see why you're offended by this," and the other person mm. saying, "Isn't it enough that to me it is sends a very clear signal that that's right. the joke that they're telling?" And you know, and that's the kind of thing that it comes back to this notion we're getting at. I think is with the South Park has been on the air for a really long time. It's changed. Its creators have changed. Some of the things about it, it just can't shake its fundamental sort of legacy and in some ways that are really clear like there's
0: a whole season about that you saw that season about it right about pc principal and the town changing and them being like maybe south park can't exist right they're kind of wrestling with this stuff in real time which is certainly
1: interesting you know it's Uh watching their like their own you know trey parker and matt stone trying to wrestle with This New Age is, I think, a totally interesting and worthy thing for them to do. The actual jokes on South Park, the way that that game, or those the show tells its jokes doesn't just doesn't really make me laugh as much as it used to anymore. And it might be Uh that the show itself is less funny. I've changed the show. I mean, it's probably
0: all of these things combined, right? It's interesting to look at the kind of It's also gotten less shocking over time because more things have come out that shock us. Our standards for shock in the Game of Thrones era are much different than our standards of shock in 2000. And
1: our standards have just changed. It's not even just that they're higher. We're just shocked by different things. I think it's interesting to look at the kinds of comedies that I feel like are very now. I think broad City is a good example. BoJack Horseman is a good example of shows that are kind of nailing the current zeitgeist of comedy. And this isn't something I've actually thought through enough to have a take on yet. But I do think it's kind of, it's interesting to look at these different eras of comedy because I do, I really think that comedy always comes from darkness and it always comes from, it tells us so much about our culture, because it tells us mm-hmm. about kind of our darkest impulses and the things that we want to explore and find funny, because so often what you find funny are things that are actually sad or tragic. Mm-hmm. And South Park, that's certainly true of South Park as well, especially if you look at the heyday of South Park, what they were talking about and what they were up against. It was just a completely different era. It was so long ago. It was the late 90s and early 2000s was kind of the the beginning. And I don't think any creative project that lasts as long as South Park does or any creative project ever truly gets completely away from where it was when it started. That's
0: just sort of the Mm -hmm, interesting thing mm -hmm. about
1: creative projects as they grow.
0: So I have a very complicated relationship with South Park. I have been watching South Park since it first came on. Like I vividly remember the first season coming out when I was in fifth grade watching it, like being enthralled by it, being thrilled by the sense that I was watching, like getting away with something every Mm -hmm. time I watch it. But it wasn't just that. There was so much of it that appealed to me. I think one of the biggest things that appealed to me about it was that it, it would make all these Jewish jokes that felt like I didn't feel like they were making fun. It felt like the type of thing... as I mentioned in my review, that Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham were talking about yeah. on the Still Processing podcast in their great episode about the Chevelle Show, where like you, everybody can laugh together at something rather than being feel feeling like you're laughing at something. It's more of like a laughing with feeling. And to me, when I saw like Kyle's mom being a Jewish a stereotype of a Jewish mom, I felt like that was something I could relate to because I knew people in my life who were like that. Or like when Kyle was singing, "It's hard to be a Jew on Christmas," which is one of the one of the show's first songs um i loved that i was like holy shit like finally a show i can relate to that like feels like it's speaking to me and then over time the show changed a lot it did a lot of interesting things it always felt like it was hurling grenades and shit like full of racist stereotypes and when it was at its best it would create these characters that were racist stereotypes but also felt like they were real characters to a point where they like it laughing at them didn't feel like you were laughing at them it felt like you were you were participating with them um I think over time the the show fired grenades and hit bad targets or aimed for your strong metaphor this is good um it's a good metaphor because I feel like that's part of comedy. It's just like aiming and when you are doing subversive comedy, you're not gonna you're gonna have some misses. You're gonna mm-hmm. like fire at some things and make some mistakes. And I feel like we as critics and as fans have to allow for that and allow for a show to make mistakes without being like, get that shit off the air. Well and that comes um, to that question before, right? Of talking about enjoying or not enjoying something versus right. talking about whether or not it should exist. Right, whether or not you should censor it, yeah. And that's that brings me to another point, by the way, which is that of all the hand-wringing over South Park, no other video game is do- come, even coming anywhere close to doing some of the things that it is doing, and there's no video game <laughs> that I can tell that is like, it, that lets you play as transgender if you want. Like, it might not affect anything in the game, but even the fact that it exists, and it's not really a punchline, it feels more, the way that it's handled with the sex thing and the gender thing, when it's giving you the... Those options, it's not doing it for a laugh. And really, I think if if it had gone the direction that you were hoping it went down where it actually said something and it mattered, I think that would be really tough to do in a comedy well, game Well, I don't want to cr- start critiquing imagined jokes that aren't in the game because sure, the thing sure, I'm sure, imagining sure, sure. is them handling no, but, it well, you know. I'm not imagining yeah, a bad But version I don't of it. I don't even know how do you like like how would a South Park game whatever. Yeah, that's yeah, not, yeah, that's besides the point. My point salient. is that this is a game that is doing things that no other game is doing which brings me to another point that we haven't discussed which is the best humor in the game isn't coming from this racist shock humor it's coming from the kids being these innocent kids who have no idea what's going on and are just playing superheroes while all this insane shit is happening around them and they get into some ridiculous situations over the course of the game that I won't spoil but it's basically I mean if you played Sick of Truth you know what to expect and Sick of Truth the town was like invaded by zombie Nazis and It was just ridiculous things happened. Things exploded. The best episodes of South Park have always been where the kids get into these absurd situations, but they're just like being kids and their goals and the thing they're concerned about is something else entirely like there's a great trilogy of episodes where Cartman freezes himself and sends him back sends himself back in time because he doesn't want to wait three weeks for the Nintendo Wii Um, and the entire episode goes to ridiculous places he's caught in this civil war between aliens and the only thing he cares about is getting a Nintendo Wii and hooking that up and that contrast between the ridiculous premises at South Park and the innocent uh, kind of childish dreams of the kids has always been really interesting to me and really funny um in the game when it does that when it explores that stuff it's great it's like the kids are talking about ma- playing superheroes and creating superhero franchises even as all these crazy things happen around them even, even as they battle like danger and death defying situations i've always enjoyed that and no other game does anything like yeah that. i think that i like that i like it that at the beginning it starts with cartman
1: quote traveling back in time unquote and he runs into their fantasy role playing and he's dressed up as a character from the future and it's kind of it. it's this in world there's real stuff happening and there's made up stuff happening in the world of the kids and i do like that comparison there was something you said a little while ago that i that made me that i had a thought on related to the thing i was saying um about uh-huh. sort of south park and the idea of it being sort of white people humor or that kind of thing that I think the, so the podcast you were talking about, Still Processing, um, is a really fantastic podcast. And yeah, they had this really good conversation where the two hosts um, saw Dave Chappelle stand up and sort of talked about his career, the times he's, the lines he's crossed at times, the ways he's been defensive, the way he's clearly working through it in public. It's really good discussion. And it gets a lot at the nature of humor and comedy and how there are times there's a—I um, think it's Wesley Morris, one of the hosts, is talking about seeing Chappelle live, and he tells some joke— that 's a bad joke it 's it's, it's not aimed mm-hmm. correctly, and it has and it 's mean, and he 's laughing his ass off anyways, because Dave Chappelle is just so funny and good at making people laugh and It makes me uh-huh. think so the thing you 're saying about when everybody 's laughing we 're all in on the joke, and that I think is true, and those those are usually the best kinds of jokes, and those are the, when South Park does that really well. I think it is a thing that I think some white people certainly i 've noticed as a white person over the last twenty years. There, are t- there have been times, there are times where white people think everybody's in on the joke, and actually everybody isn't in on the joke. And I think South Park has definitely right. had that happen. Over the years, there have been times where they say, ha ha, look, everyone thinks this is funny. And if you ask non-white people in the room with you, do you think this is funny, they might say, actually, you know, you, you might be, they might be, I would have been surprised by the answers to those back when I was first watching that stuff. And now, I'm much more aware I think of that of the tendency to think okay this is cool right everyone thinks this is funny maybe everyone doesn't think this is funny and I'm I think because I'm more aware of that it makes me more aware of just in general the way that South Park's humor operates.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've been thinking about the South Park movie, bigger yeah. longer and uncut. Oh, you yeah, ever seen definitely. That? So I've I've long considered that to be one of my favorite movies. One of the the uh, f- phenomenal musical. It is just a an amazing movie. The, I think that's it's, undisputed. The music is incredible. And I was thinking about that, and I was trying to deconstruct it. And I think what I like most of that is, like I was just saying, that contrast between the innocence of the children and the yeah, which the is long absurdity been South Park's of what sort they're, of
1: brand right is that, that they they get a lot. Oh yeah, of, of course out of that.
0: But there's also when when that that movie and I don't remember every single joke in it, but I do remember it doing some stuff, taking doing some shock jokes and some racial jokes. And there was this scene I remember where the army director, the the U.S. Army, is fighting against Canada, and the army director goes. Uh, activate operate, Operation right, Human right. Shield. And the idea is that all the black people, all the black soldiers have to stand in front of mm-hmm. all the white people. And that's the army general's plan. And instead of participating, all the black people are like, like, get the fuck out of the way. Like, and, and they just mm-hmm. all bail. And it's, it's a funny moment. And it's a, it's a good, Subversion. And obviously, I am a white person laughing at this. Um, but I think it's, it's the type of thing that I enjoyed because it felt like it was the target of the joke was not these black people. The target of the joke was this army general and the black people at the end of the day were able to turn it on its head and, and not get blown up and not sacrifice themselves and that i think is is when that is to me good south park quote unquote there are moments when south park does not do that and when it targets uh uh, people who like are when punching down basically people who are vulnerable and and should not be targeted and it makes them the butt of the joke rather than the white army angel uh, army general who's being an asshole um and i think that is Bad South Park, and and that is more of the South Park that, like you said, is very is is white people humor where it's they don't mind laughing at white people don't mind laughing at everything because we haven't been subject to those same experiences and we don't have to live with the reality of that awfulness and yeah I mean and what do you make of that that particular part of the yeah South I Park? mean I think. Um...
1: I agree. I remember that joke. And I I think what you're, I I think I agree with your take. It's, you know, it's the same kind of thing where I would, I would, I would want to investigate my feelings on it now and watch it again just because of the ways Mm -hmm. that I've sort of changed my own assumptions about what's funny and what's not, and what I find funny um, and what another person might not find funny and just sort of understanding all of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's well articulated in general with like where they aim their jokes. There's also this interesting, bigger thing, you know, getting a little broader and and outside of the notion of what jokes are, are okay and not. There's, there's a bigger question with comedy of timing and, South Park's timing has always been really impeccable because they turn that show around so fast. They're really incredible at mm-hmm. it, I feel like. There's, the, there's an episode I always think of. It's the one where they find Saddam Hussein in a spider hole, in the episode, mm-hmm. and it was literally—I can't remember—two days after that happened in the news, and there was this. Um, I think there was even a, an article somewhere about how they made that episode because they—I think they shoehorned in the scenes with Saddam Hussein to an episode that they had already written and that was already in production, mm-hmm. and you know, basically, but that kind of thing where there can be—they can turn stuff around so fast that you're seeing jokes about stuff that just happened two days ago on an animated TV show, which feels unusual you know compared to how long it Uh usually takes that taking that and applying that to game development is tricky um i think it's hard when you have a game that's going to be in development for this long just to make the kinds of jokes that you know even now when you watch south park an old south park episode you're not actually getting it in the moment when it came out and that was a major strength of the show over the years and probably Uh continues to be i don't really watch anymore but i would imagine continues to be that they're
0: they were always pretty limber, and I and it does feel a little like the game doesn't have. Yeah, that. Yeah, it does continue to be. I mean, their their episode a couple of weeks ago was about North Korea, like days after right. Trump was So they they back still have forward, that like, ability. Where Korea, yeah. If you're making a video game, you just
1: don't. So the jokes are still going to be the same. The same, it's more the same jokes that we got on a few past seasons of South Park, some of the politics stuff, the gentrification right. stuff, like some of the storylines, the PC principle stuff that they've been doing. So it just mm-hmm. won't have that kind of freshness that does sort of right. fuel the initial burst on a given South Park, or at least traditionally did. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite episodes of South Park was the one where it was right after Obama won for the first time. So it would have been 2008. Mm -hmm. And it was him versus McCain. And then the episode was about the election. It showed Obama winning. They gave, they used lines from the exact speech that Obama gave in the episode. So it was like, and it was the day after. Um, And then it turned into this Ocean's Eleven plot where Sarah Palin was secretly a super genius. Uh, So no, that would have been 2012. Was Palin no, 2012? She was, was 2008. Yeah. Yeah. She was eight? Okay, then yeah, it was then. And Sarah Palin was a super genius and McCain and Obama were teaming up to steal the election and it was hmm. this whole thing where <laughs> they were all just trying to rob the jewels from the White House. <laughs> yeah, I haven't uh, seen that It one. was incredible. It was incredibly yeah. well done and it was like just the perfect South Park episode in that it wasn't targeting like people who don't deserve to be targeted. It was targeting powerful people and making fun of them and the idea of Sarah Palin as a super genius mm-hmm. is just perfect. It's just a perfect subversion. Um, and yeah, that to me is like Prime South Park, and there still have been uh, recent episodes over the past few years that have hit those highs. Um, but yeah, but when it when it when it gets into bad South Park, then it's it's less pleasant than it used to be. At least for uh, me, I will say um, one thing, sure just on a well.
1: totally video gaming note, is that playing this game is interesting uh-huh. because it just kind of makes me want to play Mario and Rabbids, because it's this it's another Ubisoft uh-huh. licensed game. It's another turn based game. It kind of actually has similar menus. And um, I, I don't know. It's it's funny that these two games came out so close to one another, because they're kind of similar. I mean, I know they're different, but in some ways. But I'm I, I it makes me just want to go back and play more Mario and Rabbits, which I haven't played enough of. I was playing some, and I was <laughs> so just the strategy of thinking, combat is definitely better. Yeah, Mario, like right? I, I like the gameplay more in Mario and Rabbits, and it's just sort of so yeah. That's uh-huh. that's been my my main takeaway
0: is I don't know how much more I'm going to play only because
1: um, it made me want to play a different game. Uh,
0: one thing that is uh worth noting is uh yeah one final thought is that trey parker and matt stones uh best accomplishment over the past few years is not South Park but in fact Book of Mormon which is just an astounding which, accomplishment which uh, Emily and I just got tickets to see in Portland you in will, January you will love it it is so good the, the sound the music is just top notch I mean no matter love him or hate him I think you have to acknowledge that Trey Parker is yes. a genius Trey Parker is the musical, guy who writes and directs brilliant the majority of stuff composer. Um, and yeah and he's just been writing so much good music over the years and so many clever things and yeah I mean, I think, I think that that as coming from a position of someone who's a fan of their work but who has complicated feelings of, about their work, I feel like they are geniuses and it's hard to argue with that, um, even if you don't love what they do. Um, all right, so that was South Park. Wow, we talked about that for a while. Let's take a break and then talk about some news. Mm-hmm. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, I'm Melissa Kirsch, Editor-in-Chief of Lifehacker. And I'm Alice Bradley, Lifehacker's
1: Deputy Editor.
0: And we're the hosts of Lifehacker's podcast, The Upgrade. On The Upgrade, we help you improve your life one week at a time. We talk to guests like former hacker Hector Monsegur about online security.
1: You need to be aware of how you can be attacked you need to be aware of what's your weakness.
0: And Alan Alda on how to communicate more effectively.
1: And in order to achieve that, we start with teaching exercises derived from improvisation.
0: And sex therapist Steven Snyder about how to have great sex in a long-term relationship. What really works under those circumstances is if you enjoy the other person selfishly. Hey, your life? It's terrible. We can help. <laughs> Find The Upgrade wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back, and let's get into the news of the week, starting with item number one. The biggest news of the week, at least from a video game industry perspective, um, is crazy. EA shut down Visceral Games, the studio best known for the Dead Space series, and was most recently working on a Star Wars game. Um, In their announcement of the shutdown, they said that this this Star Wars game, uh, they were not happy with the direction of it, that it was going to be a single player linear action adventure game. They're taking it to a new studio, EA Vancouver, moving it there. rebooting it with a new lead and uh, starting over, basically using some of the assets from the Visceral Games version, which is codenamed Ragtag. So we'll just call it that, Ragtag's assets. Um, But Visceral is shutting down. It didn't seem like there were any layoffs. It seemed like EA is trying to move Visceral's people to other studios. EA has been good over the past few years about doing that. They did the same thing with Bioware Montreal, where they, they didn't lay off a lot of people. They moved a lot of people and gave them jobs elsewhere in the company um but yeah just a harsh harsh industry volatile industry um just craziness what do you, what do you think are you going to miss visceral games
1: um i no
0: i mean i it's always a bummer when when a place gets shut down it's nice to mm-hmm. hear that
1: there weren't a lot of layoffs i mean i think that sort of significantly dulls the blow i'm not sad about there not being another brand um i you know in another dead space i did like dead space i like dead space 1 and 2 but at this point, I think that I've followed the industry long enough to know that if I liked a game that a studio made 10 years ago, and that studio now ceases to exist, it's just as likely that the people who made that game weren't even there anymore to begin with, or, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 rarely the same as, you know, uh, Tom Petty dying and, and saying, oh my god, the guy who wrote all these songs that is directly responsible for all this great music is now dead, or Prince dying, you know, that's much more... Okay, the direct one-to-one correlation between the thing that I love and the thing that no longer exists is something I can mourn? That's With so visceral, true. We, so,
0: we get so attached to these brands. Yeah, and which not is weird. People. I mean, I don't really. I don't feel that attachment to, I think. Well, it's not weird because companies push their brands instead of their people, so it makes sense that you would get attached to...
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and also a... it's
0: impossible to you know, like on a game, it's impossible to know whose contribution turned into what and who was responsible because it's such a collaborative effort. Yeah, you in a way up... that Tom Petty's band is not, or even a film director. Are you it's saying it's the Heartbreakers are not a collaborative effort? I think there are some band well. members who would take issue. <laughs> the Heartbreakers
1: are not the same without Tom. I think it puts you, especially like in games, it's similar to liking movies, where like with movies we like to put a single director. You know, on like Wes Anderson or Quentin Tarantino, where Quentin uh-huh. Tarantino's longtime editor dies, and then suddenly his movies feel very different, and you realize how much it matters these other people. And it's definitely true in games. I, I always wind up now in a weird place on games where I just, I sort of when I really like something, something makes me laugh, something makes me happy. I just sort of offer this. Open-ended thanks to the universe, you know, because uh-huh. you're just saying, "Well, thanks to all the people who made that cool thing I just liked," because you kind of—it's very hard to to assign it to any specific. person. And then you look in the credits, and it's
0: like 300 yeah, people you plus don't know 300 who was, more outsourced yeah,
1: people. Right, the five, the 15 conversations and decisions that led to that thing that you liked. Right. So it's it's hard. It. it but I, I don't think the answer is to you know, like I, I consciously avoid thinking, oh. This was great, Rockstar or Nintendo. You know, I, I try to think of the people, but it is very hard, I think, to do. So I I get why people struggle with it, for sure. But no, mm-hmm. I don't feel a, a strong attachment
0: to visceral games, no. Not mm. as a brand. Are you sad about the prospect of a Star Wars linear action adventure game not existing, especially after 1313 died? Yeah, I mean, I well, I would be into playing one of those games. I it
1: it sucks it's just to been think cursed. that yeah it seems a little cursed because it's it sounds to me as though both of those both of those projects had problems and it wasn't i don't think it just it is well definitely 1313 had problems it wasn't just a matter of people in charge i read your book but people in charge saying you know we don't want to do this anymore, which I think has been the sort of simplification that people have been making about this news. Uh
0: Yeah, well, it's funny. So, yeah, my book, Bloodstone Pixels, has a chapter on 1313, and at the end of that chapter, uh, the... The leads of 1313 drive to Visceral and pitch them the game. Yeah. And spoilers, Visceral says no, because Visceral is in the process of putting together its own Star Wars game. And now both are gone. Um, it is cursed. It is... Uh, there is there is something something horribly yeah, wrong here why with Star Wars. I why you
1: think. I mean, at least in terms of the, the easy stuff. The easy stuff that armchair that pundits like us do, of just coming up with an idea or looking back at Dark Forces and saying, this can be done. You can... You can can do a good single-player Star Wars game. Um, but it, yeah. it is a little dispiriting, only as someone who would love to play a game like that. But I don't know. I'd love to play any good Star Wars single-player. Where I mean, not I'm not so into Battlefront, I guess. But I would play any Star Wars game. I just want good good games, good Star Wars games in
0: general. They don't have to yeah. be single-player. I do think that it's... I think part of it is the pressure. I mean, so with Visceral specifically, there will be more to the story that comes out uh, maybe even on kotaku.com there'll be more to the story that comes yeah, out yeah I'm sure um, I actually I think that I had mentioned on an episode of split screen a few months ago that I had heard rumors about that project being in trouble which I had for a while now mm-hmm. um, I don't remember which episode it's one it of your, was. One so of your patented Schreier, and finds it. Schreier teases Schreier mini, mini sc- scoops on split screen. Um, what was the other thing? There was something else that we... Oh, yeah, Shadow of War oh, yeah, we right. were talking about. Um, yeah, I think I mentioned that a little while ago. But But, yeah, that's a thing. And... I think a large part of it, or a large part of the problem with Star Wars games in general, is just that expectations are so high, and pressure is so high, and there are so many cooks who all have their ideas of what should go into the stew. Um, You have your Lucasfilm people, your Lucasfilm department, and their story departments, and then EA executives, and there are just so many. I mean, this this was a problem at LucasArts as well, where there are just so many people who have their own ideas that need to go into things, and the pressure is so high because... You're making games based on the biggest franchise in history, and it's just uh it's just a mess and sad and I hope battlefronts two's campaign is really good and uh uh makes up for the lack of single player star Wars games of the year yeah, here's hoping um all right let's move on to item on item number two um this is uh uh Crazy story. Over the weekend on Saturday, um, a former Naughty Dog employee, David Ballard, tweeted, and he had shared on Facebook the day before, that he was sexually harassed while he was working at Naughty Dog. And he didn't go into specifics. He didn't say who had done it. He just said it was a lead at Naughty Dog. Um, he said he had a meltdown at work, and he left, And uh, or no, sorry, he said he had a meltdown at work, and he uh, filed a complaint to HR. And on the phone with HR, HR told him that he was fired. Um, so that's his side of the story. He has not said anything since then. Um, as of this recording, at least, uh, I did some reporting where I spoke to some people who worked with him, and pretty much all of them said that they believed him, uh, and but were shocked and hadn't heard anything about the sexual harassment. Which, of course, doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means he hadn't told those specific people. Um, were people knew that he was having a breakdown, but people basically thought that it was the result of Crunch, which Naughty Dog does a lot of, and especially on Uncharted 4, which was a really brutal project, um, also documented in Bloodsword and Pixels. And yeah, it, it's, it seems like the story is incomplete right now. We don't have the full picture, unfortunately. I've tried to reach out to Ballard a few times, but he um, has not said anything, has not, has not gone back to me. Um, I'm hoping that he speaks his mind and tells the full story, uh, whether on Kotaku or elsewhere, I just want him to to get all the details out there. Um, Oh, the other part of the equation that I didn't mention is that Naughty Dog and Sony put out a statement almost immediately uh, Sunday, even after the allegations came out Saturday. They came out on Sunday and said, basically, they said, we have no record of these allegations being filed, uh, which could mean anything. It's kind of a carefully crafted statement designed in a way so that they could say they, they weren't denying that it happened. They were just saying, we don't have a record of it which basically means there was no written complaint. And it's very possible that he had that phone call that David mentioned on Twitter, uh, but that Nundy Dog HR didn't have a record of it um, or didn't want to have a record of it. So yeah, that's that's the story as it's at right now. Um, Pretty horrifying. I, I can only hope that it leads to more people feeling comfortable to talk about their own stories and shed some light on gross situations, but it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, it's, I don't, I mean, I haven't come to a lot of
1: conclusions about this specific story because like you said, it's incomplete and I just, I'm sort of trying yeah. not to. It does make me think, you know, this and of course the Harvey Weinstein story that's been coming out of him just over decades just being completely predatory and disgusting and, you know, just time and time again and and all these women who've come forward, you know, Ashley Judd and, and um, Angelina Jolie and sort of major actresses, sort of was only now feeling okay talking about this stuff publicly and only in solidarity with a lot of other people and the culture of harassment that exists in so many of these, these kinds of industries that I'm sure exists Mm in games exists probably all over the place. Um, media too in, you know, all over. And I don't know, I've, I have sort of broader thoughts on that. Uh, there's this really good, I, I guess I've been thinking a lot just personally about what it is to be a man in a male dominated industry what the best mm-hmm. you can do is what the best we can hope for is, and and just what that means. There was this uh, really kind of scathing but very good op-ed that Lindy West, former Jezebel writer, brilliant writer, wrote for the New York Times about America's addiction to plausible deniability. And if you just Google it, it's, mm-hmm. it's totally worth reading. And she's kind of she's talking about Harvey Weinstein or Weinstein and the that story in general, and the idea that there are both people who prey on other people and also this culture that just makes it very very difficult to speak out about that and that leans so far toward maintaining the institution and the system and protecting the system and the institution and in a lot of cases if the person in question the person who's been accused is powerful like there are so many forces of inertia leaning toward protecting that person and keeping them in power and discouraging people from speaking out you know NDAs and settlements mm-hmm. and 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 denials and just the way that so often the, it's so hard to speak up and do what this guy did about Naughty Dog or do what so many people did because the first thing everyone is going to do is question your story and it's all you know usually maybe it's even a story about something that wasn't documented and is really hard it's in a gray area and is kind of hard but you're telling people that it was wrong and that it felt wrong to you
0: yeah all of this is very very difficult and and it makes you look weak and you have to be worried about like how it affects your well, career imagine, I mean imagine coming so many forward to to be in
1: publicly to say something that. You know, people will interpret it as an attack on Naughty Dog, this beloved studio, when really it's right. it's about something else, and just how that's going to make you a target. How scary it is to do that alone. I think you know so many people were willing to speak up about um, Harvey Weinstein because he is, you know, the, he's kind of lost, he's out of power a little bit, and there were so many people doing it that it, you kind of get strength in numbers. But doing that alone is just terrifying, the thought of that. Mm-hmm. And the last that I had is just. I, I I feel like there's this call right now among men to do better in in all of this stuff and I think that that's super true. And I've been thinking about how the best like kind of the best that I can hope for as a guy in this kind of space right now. And I don't actually think this is the best I can hope for. But the the best case scenario is that someone comes to you and says, "Hey, did you hear that so and so that you work with closely has actually like a serial creep and has been, you know, harassing women forever." The best you can kind of hope for is to say, "No, I had no fucking idea. That's horrible. I didn't know." Which is, you know, true. I've kind of been doing this going through thinking, okay, are there, am I, is this going to happen? Are there any guys that I know that are like this? I mean, obviously the first thing you do is, have I ever done that? And I think every guy mm-hmm. has probably done something that sort of hurt somebody or made somebody feel weird. But hopefully the answer to that is no. And then the next question you do is, do I know anybody? Okay, the answer is no. And then is that, is that the best case scenario that you just don't know about it? Even though we know now that it's happening and that it's out there, and then what's the next step? And I'm really sort of struggling with that. What do you do other than just try to promote a better space and and, you know not be part of the problem? How do you be part of the solution? And that is where I'm. I guess that's where I'm at right now. And I'm chewing on it and doing a lot of reading and thinking and just trying to trying to figure that out because I don't think that that's the best that we can do.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about it as a reporter, as what I can be doing to expose this stuff and covering it when it happens, but it's very, very tough, and it's like you you cannot—I mean, just—so so as a human being, I think a good mentality is just to believe victims and, and trust yeah. that, that if they're coming out and saying something, it's probably not going to be a, a false accusation, I mean— Chances are low that that's Yeah, right. Case. You can look at the, as a
1: re- the basic who has what to lose here. This person you've never heard of who's right. coming out and saying something about a very powerful person doesn't have that right. much. And the very powerful person has a lot to lose. So they have a lot of reason to it say that's not to, true, right, and that's right, right, kind of right. a good dynamic to um, keep in mind.
0: As a human being, but as a reporter, the rules are very yeah. different. As a reporter, you cannot just believe people because you have just... Totally different standards of what can, what is publishable and what is not, what is libel and what is not, what is fair and what is not, and that puts you in all sorts of ethical dilemmas. And this is not an easy; uh, uh, these are not questions that are easy to answer. These are things that reporters in every field have been wrestling with for years and years: is how to cover sexual harassment stories, how to deal with lack of evidence. I mean, most famously with that Rolling Stone story where they were just totally duped into covering the uh, that false, false sexual. Harassment. Harassment story the rape story I thought uh, listen
1: to the campus Yeah, rape the story, rape yeah. story.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she was she the woman claimed she was gang raped at a college frat and yeah, that that as a reporter it's just so much different and and I'm trying to figure out ways. I mean, obviously I always want to hear from people who want to share their stories. But it's also a, a tricky situation. It's tricky to cover. It's tricky to figure out how much to be fair, and um, is it fair to let someone say, like anonymously, say, "I was sexually harassed at this studio." Is that something that's fair to publish? Yeah, I don't know. It, I don't know. It's the interesting answer to, that. to
1: look at some of the um, some of the recent stories have all had in common um, a widespread pattern. And that I think mm-hmm. does make it easier to report. I sense that, Ron, like Ronan Farrow and, yeah, and that's running down the Harvey Weinstein story, he was talking to lots and lots of people. This was a you know very, as I, I gather, very open secret in Hollywood that this guy was just a creep, yes. and I think. That made it easier, is you're saying, well, I'm hearing this from all these people, we're getting this picture, and with everybody telling this story, it makes it easier. Bill Cosby was very similar, actually, Donald Trump was very similar, the
0: time when... But these are, so the people you're talking about are famous, high-profile people. I'm thinking about the person who is a lead in Naughty Dog, who allegedly sexually harassed this person, but, like, if... if, he if nobody knows who he is how do you as a reporter well, handle that how do you speak you truth kind of, to power when right, the person you get into the
1: question of what's the story also because so, sometimes if i mean sexual right. harassment does happen it's a bad thing that happens and if someone is sexually harassed at work and then there's a settlement and the company deals with it then that happened is that a story i mean that happens at companies so maybe maybe not depending on your beat Then again, like, is the story maybe, and I'm not at all saying that that, this is the story in this case, but if the story winds up being this company knew about this thing, they've been offering settlements to people over the years, there's a pattern here of a broader thing, then that's more of a story. So you kind of are always asking yourself, right, what's the story here, and is this actually a story? And it isn't always
0: yeah and in the in the video game industry you have the added dynamic of there not being a lot of women who work in AAA mm-hmm. game development studios so that just makes things even creepier and every woman in gaming has their own story about the time that someone was super creepy to them at work and the time someone like said something that they would not have said to another mm-hmm. man or like made comments that. and, and some of that stuff is like um, people I think people the conversation needs to draw a very distinct lines between uh physical harassment and like sexual verbal sexual harassment and then verbal creepiness and there are a lot of different layers to this uh that i think has gotten lost a lot of the nuance has gotten lost in the overall discourse um and yeah i mean i wish there were more ways to cover just the general creepiness that goes on in the video game industry and maybe we as a a media outlet could be doing a better job of of covering that as it happened but it's also like Do I name names if someone uh, at like in a meeting at an office at EA or whatever like said something nasty to a woman like shot her down or something like is that a story for Kotaku? I mean, it's one of those things where you try to cover the systemic stuff um, and hope for hopefully there are enough stories that you can turn it into like broader broader picture issues and I don't know it's just. Men are shitty, and I wish it's they were. It's difficult. Would have been it, and it certainly <laughs> the end of the is, day.
1: It does not make things easier. The fact that there are all these gray areas and that, you know, spoken innuendo can be just as threatening depending on how it's done as physical threats right. and violence. You know, it, it really can be like when somebody who's that powerful or that intimidating is telling you things. So it, it really, and then you end up in this gray area of, well, it was just words, right? Oh, it's just, I mean, it's it's very similar right. to talking about harassment right. online. Oh, they're just get off the internet, get a thicker skin.
0: There's a great story on Kutaku that we did a few years ago that I wonder if we should be doing every year uh, by Tina called The Creepy Side of E3 where she oh, man, uh, man. ran some uh, accounts of a, re- a particularly creepy year at E3 and how women were treated there. And yeah, I think we could be doing more stuff like that, um, which hopefully we will be talking about and doing more Kotaku. Anyway, let's move on. Um, news item number three, a little bit on the lighter side after yeah. that heavy yeah, talk. A heavy episode. Dusty 2's Iron Banner comes to a conclusion. Wait a
1: minute. This isn't light. This is the heaviest shit there is. This it's is the, the heaviest ammo there is. The heaviest. Um, t- there, it's
0: no, longer no. it's now it's power ammo. It's so no longer heavy. My, my perfect joke ruined by Destiny 2's nomenclature. My out-of-date um, vernacular. So I stopped playing Destiny 2 a few weeks ago, um, probably around the, like, the weekend that the raid came out. I played it, and then I don't. I think I just stopped. Or no, the weekend trials came out, and I played it, and then I just stopped. I haven't played since then. You've mm-hmm. been playing consistently. Um, you checked out Iron Banner, which you thought sucked. But I, I kind of want to use this as an opportunity to talk <laughs> I about this like you're steam. like, I'm going to paraphrase a bunch of stuff inaccurately. <laughs> and now yeah, I'm just going to move on
1: to my thoughts. First off, A, I haven't been playing Destiny regular. I've been playing very infrequently, maybe once Okay, fine. You've been playing I played Iron Banner, and I thought it was fun, but missing something. And I could talk about that, too. Okay, but I'll just what let was you pivot say, into your thoughts. You don't have to what paraphrase my to thoughts say. before
0: pivoting into your thoughts. You can just say your thoughts. Man, what I was going to say... <laughs> is that I want to use this as an opportunity. My The literal next words are going to come out of my mouth, where I was going to use this as an opportunity to let you talk about the state of Destiny 2. That's cool. You can just let so me So please that. talk about the state of Destiny 2.
1: <laughs> so the state of Destiny 2 is very, I think it's in a very interesting place right now. Um, obviously, anyone who plays the game hard is a sort of intense player who listens to our show and reads Destiny the Game, subreddit, and forums is aware of the fact that there is a great deal... Of unrest among the fan base about you know the various issues that I think we've discussed before. I think we had we briefly talked about the Endgame, the last time we talked about Destiny Two, but just the fact that there doesn't seem to be that much to do uh-huh. um, once you get to a certain point in Endgame that they've removed some of the. Sort of more, I think, unhealthy grind elements that were in Destiny One, but they haven't really replaced them with anything new.
0: So, yeah, a lot of it's people worth noting just... that the same thing happened after Destiny One oh, and after yes. Taking King. But oh, yeah. it took months, and with this, it just took a couple of weeks. Right.
1: It's like I mean, this is like clockwork with any game like this. It's just how it works, I think. Um, and it's definitely compounded by the fact that Destiny One existed and that Destiny Two, you know, is is coming after three years of Destiny One. Even though there, you know there's a sort of I, th- I think unrealistic expectation that Destiny Two would take every single thing from Destiny One and just make it better and include it when in fact that game has been in development for so long that it, i don 't think it's actually possible for them to take things that were actively being put into Destiny one and just keep adding them to destiny two that 's not really how mm-hmm. that worked so there you know it's i 'll see this d- discussion sometimes like you know on the subreddit or something the question of is this a A new game or is this just the fourth year of destiny and it's somewhere in between but it's not just the fourth year of destiny we shouldn't be expecting i don't think it's a fair expectation Mm -hmm. or at least clearly not an accurate one because this game is not doesn't doesn't have everything the destiny one had you know Mm. year three destiny one had and that's i think okay like i think that it's better to have a a strong foundation and go from here but i certainly understand why people are feeling a little let down Mm mm-hmm It's interesting. So Iron Banner was a big letdown, I think, for a lot of people. For me, I always liked Iron Banner and um, was not super into this one. So the Iron Banner, uh, if you don't know, is a weekly tournament in Destiny or just an event, really, like a PvP event that turns Mm -hmm. up in the game every six weeks or so and uh, runs for a week. And there's sort of a separate it's it revolves around the Crucible, the competitive part of the game. And in Destiny One, the idea was that you there's special Iron Banner loot that you get, and you rank up your Iron Banner rank over the week. And as you reach certain ranks, you can buy stuff from the Iron Vendor or the Iron Banner Vendor. And then there's also specific you know gear that drops during and matches. And if you get enough,
0: you can sit on the Iron Throne. Yes,
1: of course you can. Um, you could you can occupy the Iron Throne and finally give the thumbs up or thumbs down to what like people that get brought in front of you. That's what you do when you sit on the Iron Throne, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's kind of how it worked. Oh, and. There was a big deal made at the beginning that power levels or light levels weren't going to, were the training wheels were going to be off in the crucible. Uh-huh. And the idea would be if you have a really high-level character with powerful guns, you do more damage and take less damage from a low-level character with garbage starter guns. And then I remember this. I think we even posted about this. When the first Iron Banner came out, it was immediately people were like, wait a minute here. There's almost no difference. You can go in with the Kvostok, with the, like the, the piece of shit gun that you start the game with, and clean up and do fine if you're good. You just have a tiny damage you know, reduction. And then I think that got even narrower over the course of three years to where it basically wasn't there anymore but there was still that idea that your gear mattered in iron banner in some nebulous way. so in destiny mm-hmm. 2 in iron banner that's gone. um it's just the same as you know how trials is the same way uh it's just leveled out everybody's the same. um there there is a vendor but you don't un- you don't rank up and unlock gear the same way you just get tokens the same so way. That wait, you do for so wait so does else. your power level really matter to anything? no. I mean, yeah, it matters in PVE. It matters like if you're fighting 300 power enemies, like in the Prestige raid that launched today. Um, okay, you know, you that matters, yeah. But that's okay. the only the only place that it matters is in PVE. It does not there are no PvP events where power huh. level matters, which I get. I think that's like not a bad decision, especially because it basically didn't matter anymore anyways. That said, it, there was kind of this nice feeling of, like, oh, I've got my best shit, and I'm really kind of gearing up for and Banner. Yeah, I mean,
0: it does matter. The progression doesn't feel like it It actually makes a difference. Well, the progression matters for PvE. It just doesn't make a difference but for PvP. barely. I mean, if you just need to hit 300 and then that's it, then why do you need to get past 300? And, like, right. when they—I mean, I don't know. It feels like it's it's— it feels like it mattered. It feels like the numbers mattered more in Destiny One than they did in Destiny Two. I think it's which... kind of. I
1: mean, there's there are fewer high high light or high power activities, and I think that's maybe uh-huh. part of where that's coming from. Like there aren't heroic. strikes anymore there's an heroic strike playlist you know but the the nightfall there's the prestige nightfall which is a 300 I think the standard nightfall is a 240 there are all those missions that are somewhere in the 200 zone it's just Mm -hmm. yeah it, it may be there's less emphasis on it because there's just fewer higher power activities in general I do think that taking it out of pvp is fine I don't think that sent a great... Me- I'm sure they want more people to play this, and that does kind of send a bad message to people if you're saying, well, yeah, you're going to get owned by all these people who've been playing hundreds of hours, so just fuck off if right. you're not one of those people. Um, it's just... There, there are a couple... There's something missing from the Iron Banner that wasn't actually missing from, from other activities, and I don't quite uh-huh. know what it is. Um, there, like, uh, Faction Rally was actually pretty cool. Uh, so Faction Rally was a similar thing. You pledged to a faction. It led to this kind of cute... I thought kind of... All the factions in Destiny are kind of dull... But it was still kind of funny how people were sort of arguing, oh, Future Walk World's better, you know, Dead Orbit's better. That's kind of fun. And then Uh the actual tasks that it had you do involved, a lot of them involved lost sectors. So you would go and explore a lost sector, and they hid some things in there that you'd blow up. It was really basic stuff. This is not super exciting. But it got people to go check out lost sectors. And I was going to Lost Sectors and kind of having fun doing that because it was something I didn't normally do. So it was encouraging Uh me to like play the game in a slightly different way. Iron Banner doesn't do that. And I think that's kind of what Destiny is struggling with in general right now, is coming up with interesting new stuff that sort of actually pushes us to play the game differently. And there isn't a lot of that right now. And I think that's making it feel like there isn't very much variety. Mm -hmm. That's maybe part of it
0: anyway. Mm. Well, hopefully DLC, the first DLC, which comes out in December, yeah. changes things up. Low. I
1: mean, I'm so I, I did a big article talking to a bunch of PvP players, Triple Rec and Dado, who's been on our show, Sir Demetrius, and Mr. Fruit, uh, who are all really cool guys and really good at Destiny. And it was interesting talking to them, especially about the PC version, which comes out on Tuesday. Because I'm actually excited for the PC version. I don't. I know there are a lot of people saying, oh, I'm canceling my pre-orders. Some of the people I know or that we play with aren't as psyched. But I'm actually really sort of looking forward to doing everything again and just playing on PC because it's so much fun to play the game on PC. And I'll be very, Uh very interested to see what that influx of new players is going to be. I mean, just looking at our staff, there are all these people on our staff who want to play it on pc who've never played destiny before and that's just on kotaku's staff these people never played they just never got into it and they're going to play on Uh pc so i think there will just be tons of people who've never played destiny who have no framework and then no expectations and no like no baggage just coming in and playing this game for the first time i'm very very interested to know what that kind of person thinks of the game
0: as someone who just so that's in two weeks no it's this coming tuesday it's next week oh wow okay so we will see we will talk about it more next week yeah it'll be interesting um all right, let's take another break, and then we will come back and wrap things up. Cool. Okay, Kirk, before we wrap things up for this week's episode, let's talk about a couple of quick games that we are playing. Yeah, let's do it. Neither of us have Super Mario Odyssey yet, so we cannot talk about that, sadly, hopefully so sad. soon. So sad. Um comes out next week. Uh, what is the count at now? Eight days? Yep, eight days. Um, so it's almost here. Uh, I've been playing a bunch of World Dig 2, which I talked about last week, and remains excellent. In case you didn't hear it last week, it's basically a Metroidvania where you dig into the ground, and you get all these cool items. I just got a jetpack, and you can fly around with it, and it's really cool. You got a jetpack? Um, oh my changes- god, oh man, spoilers. No. It changes I- everything.
1: So I've been thinking there's going to be a double jump or something, because the way the grappling hook changes everything. Because going up in that game is very is a challenge. It's an interesting yep. challenge, but a consistent challenge. Having a jetpack would just completely... Yep, you got a
0: jetpack. I won't say anything else, space. but play, play more. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, I
1: definitely want to. I, I'm really... I love that game. What else are you playing? Two things. Um, I want to talk some more about Shadow of War because I've played more of that game. Um, before that, briefly, I've been playing a, like a lot of Stardew Valley on Switch, like uh-huh. a problematic amount. Um, holy shit, that game is addictive. I've seen this sentiment around. I've seen more and more people sort of marveling at how addictive this game is, which I don't think I really saw when it was on PC because I think it's different on Switch. At least it has uh-huh. been for me. Good lord. There have been a couple of times and I've just let myself lean into it, where over the weekend I'll be playing Stardew Valley. I'll it'll be two PM and I'm sort of lying on bed on my bed or whatever, just playing some Stardew. And I just keep playing and keep playing and keep playing because it has that that same kind of one more turn thing that civil that makes civilization so dangerous where you play the turn out and then you get to the end of the turn and you could just stop but you want to know what will happen next and so you press play, keep going and then the next turn starts and then you start that turn because you're like, well, now I saw what happened next. I have all these decisions I want to make. Starting is very similar because this game is, you know, uh-huh. it's it's farming based and it's sort of on this calendar and each day, it's it crucially saves at the end of every day. So you have this kind of meta incentive to get to the end of the day because that's where the game saves and you can't just save at any moment. So I'll just, man, every morning then I get up and think, well, okay, I got to go water my crops and I want to go check on the livestock and, you know, make the butter and make the mayonnaise or make the cheese and the mayonnaise and kind of get stuff started. And then by then I'm, you know, it's 9.30 a.m., 10 a.m. in the game. And I'm kind of like, well, and I wanted to go see that one person and give a gift to that other person. And I just keep going and going and going.
0: Think about all the chores you could do in real life instead of
1: this. It's funny. This is something I've talked to Emily about where she'll say, I just can't play a lot of video games because they remind me too much of work. They're they're so similar. And you know, and that's a thing that I think some people find appealing about video games is that it's like your job only way simpler and you have all the power and it's constantly rewarding you and telling you that you're doing a good job unlike maybe your job is. But um, I totally get that, and um, you know I find Stardew very soothing. But it's been impressive. It's been impressive how addictive this particular mix of schedule and the way the game sort of flows one day into the other, and the way you know what's coming next, but also. Are always kind of improvising a little bit with what you're going to do. It's just a, it's a heady, hooky passage. So, or package. I've been, I've been very um, addicted to that. So, in the other game, what's the other game? Uh, I played a lot of Shadow of War over the weekend and it's not, it's really just not really doing it for me, um, that game. Uh, I got, I have like 15 or 16 hours in at this point. And wow. Yeah, and I'm still doing tutorials. That's,
0: I've, that's as long as it took me to beat all of South yeah, Park. Yeah, I know so that's quite a it's, commitment.
1: This game is the way it, it feels to me like a game that was designed to handle X number of variables in the first one, and they maybe even had a little, a few too many variables in the first game. But now everything in the game is X plus five. Everything has just been expanded so much that the game is just, it's just. Teetering under its own weight, every single system is blown out into ten different things. Every you know everything you do in the game as a million like sub options going on. Um, every mm-hmm. upgrade menu and the loot boxes are like we were saying last week are just ridiculous. Everything feels so big. There's so much going on that the game is just tutorializing you forever. I I was 14 hours in. I beat my first major siege. So you know you recruit orcs and then you fight a castle and you take the castle down. Even Uh the first Siege, I was so far into the game. I'd been playing what felt like, you know, 14 hours, like a very long time. The game is still telling me new stuff. There are multiple times where you get to what would be the final boss, and then the final boss is kind of a fake-out, and it's a cutscene. And they say, okay, this is where the final boss would be next time you do it. Anyway, here's some new stuff to introduce to you. Here's some new systems, and that's what this cutscene is kind of introducing. The whole game almost feels like a tutorial for itself. It's so busy <laughs> that it never actually feels like I'm playing it. I just, I'm constantly learning new things or being shown new systems and thinking, oh, well, maybe this is the real game or this is the real game. And it really just turns me off. That and just the overall messiness. It's so messy. There's so much going on. It's so busy. Every fight, there's a million things going on. You're getting, a, you're fighting five guys on the ground, and then there's this fire-breathing dragon landing, and you're trying to dodge the dragon. But the combat's super magnetized. So you're getting pulled around in uh-huh. a fire, and it's just kind of like ah, I. I'm going to play an Assassin's Creed game in like a week. I, there are other things that I could be playing that are more deliberate and it just I've seen people say they really like it. I actually buy that if you I think if you really get into it and you play a whole ton and just screw around with all the systems, I think it could probably be pretty fun. It's not floating my
0: boat at the moment though. You know it's not going to be messy and clunky and full of unnecessary mechanics. Hmm, hmm. what? What Jason? What game? Could you be could you be getting at? Super Mario Honestly. See, this is like the most hype. We're really going to have to eat some crow if we both hate it. I mean, think about it. There hasn't been a 3D uh, Mario game since Super Mario 3D World in 2013 for the Wii U, but even that was more of like a linear yeah, progression one, thing.
1: Yeah, cool game and everything, but didn't. Didn't scratch Really, bit. this
0: feels like there hasn't been a Mario game like this since Galaxy Two. It kind of feels that way. The Wii, yeah, kinda of feels that which way. Which was like two thousand ten or something like that. Many years ago. That's exciting. Yeah. So it's 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 gonna be gonna be a treat. Um all right. I think that's it for today. We've run a little bit long. We talked about South Park for a long time. Yeah, man. Interesting game. I'm I'm curious to see are do you think you're gonna play more of that? Yeah, probably at some point. Okay, you should try to finish it, because I would love to do a, a more spoilery discussion of like what it does. I'm curious to hear your take on a few things, a few directions yeah, it takes.
1: Yeah. You know how it goes with this kind of year. I mean, I still need to finish Danganronpa. There's mm-hmm. Danganronpa Oh my god, I can't Sin believe too. you haven't finished Danganronpa. Yet. You can't believe I haven't finished I have like 19 different games to play.
0: Mm, yeah, but that is so easy to play before bed for an hour every night.
1: No, that's the problem, is I've been playing Stardew. That's my joke on Twitter. Is It's very yeah, easy for a bit of started. Stardew before bed to turn into a lot of Stardew instead of bed.
0: Play Dangarampa instead of Stardew, and then mm. go back to Stardew, because mm. Dangarampa has an ending. Play something with an ending.
1: No, actually, Stardew. I, I it does right, have but an ending but you can keep
0: playing after that. No, <laughs> no but
1: I mean, I'm going to get to the ending of Stardew. I think I'm close. All right, all, yeah. right all right. I'm going to marry right. that. Girl. Are you going to do We're the bad ending? Down.
0: Have you ever done the bad ending? Uh, no, I don't. Where you have. like you let the corporation? Oh take yeah, over? no, hell
1: no, man. Fuck that guy. I'm not giving that guy <laughs> a sense Pelican Um, Town deserves my
0: support. It does. All right. Uh, That's it for today. I will see you next week. All right. See ya. Kotaku Split Screen is an official podcast of kotaku.com. It's produced by Kirk Hamilton and me, Jason Tribe. Kirk edits and mixes the podcast and also wrote and performed our theme song and other music. We're a part of the Fusion Podcast Network, where Mandana Mufidi is executive producer of audio. You can find us on popular podcast services like Panoply, NPR Now, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, and we hope you leave us a review if you like what you hear. Find old episodes at kotaku.com splitscreen or email us at splitscreen at kotaku.com.